This podcast is intended for a mature audience over 19 years of age and is provided on an educational and informational basis. Any material presented is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as a substitute for professional medical advice or as an endorsement or medical claim by Patterson Media, Everything Podcasts, or any advertiser. Cannabis is my direct connection to God. And when you have that open mind, be careful what you ask for. And that's why my next evolution is going to be mind-blowing because it's not just mine. It's it's the big guys, and he's got a lot of pull. (laughs) There are a few people whose names are almost synonymous with cannabis. Real megastars of weed. Bob Marley, Seth Rogen, Snoop Dogg, and this guy. When I was 17, I smoked one joint, and it lasted for about a month because I'd just take a token and put it out. He's the man who towers over all the other celebrity stoners, a man whose career holds a mirror to Pot's place in society. There was no dealers. There was no dispensaries. You didn't know anybody growing. You know, it was so illegal that people were dying. You know, they'd go to jail for many, many years. He's been there the whole time. You might recognize the voice, and even if you don't, you know the name. And then when I did start smoking, I was very little. A couple of tokes. In fact, I still do it today. I take a couple of tokes and then either put the joint out or put it away. A man whose writing, acting, and music have forever altered our culture in cannabis and beyond. Back in the day when I was playing music, intermission, we'd go out to the alley and and there'd be a, a guy out there selling these little pinners, a dollar a joint. It, was, it really was filled with marijuana dust. And we used to share the pinner with everybody in the band. I had the pleasure and the honor of sitting down with one half of the original buddy comedy duo. There's Cheech, and then there's Chong. Today, the Canadian podcast is all about Tommy Chong. Dave's not here! (laughs) It's not often you get to sit down with someone who's changed the world you live in. I've been in the radio game a while, and not only did Tommy Chong shape cannabis culture and comedy, but also broadcasting. And Tommy? He's grown a lot since the days of Cheech and Chong. He's been through a cancer scare and spent time in jail. He's deeply spiritual and clearly a man who spends a lot of time thinking about what it means to be human. Tommy Chong is a philosopher and an icon, so we're dedicating this entire episode to him. From his childhood in rural Alberta. We had to carry the water from the pump. (laughs) And my dad built the Knights' outhouse. So we had a beautiful life. To his time sharing a cell with the real wolf of Wall Street. After living with Jordan for a while, I realized what he was. A very, very intelligent guy. A genius. But on the wrong path. This is the first episode of season two. So we're launching with a Canadian cannabis legend. Oh, yeah. That's all coming up on the Canadian Podcast after a roundup of the pot news with Jay Coburn. The Canadian cannabis industry is on track to see a record number of federal licenses revoked this fiscal year. Data from Health Canada suggests that most of these licenses are being revoked at the request of the companies themselves. 42 licenses were revoked from April to September. The total revoked in the previous year was 72. 
The revocations could be a signal of an oversaturated market, but Health Canada notes that a revocation is not necessarily an exit from the market, as licensees can hold multiple licenses. New research suggests that the importance of terpenes in cannabis may have been overstated. Terpenes are generally associated with the aroma of a strain. For example, a terpene called limonene is associated with lemon-like flavors. They're also believed to influence the psychoactive effects of cannabis. The study was published in the American Chemical Society's Omega Journal. Researchers from US company Abstracts Tech found low correlations between terpene content and flavor profile. The findings could have implications for how legal cannabis is labeled and marketed. And doctors are reporting a rapid rise in emergency room admissions for a cannabis-related vomiting condition. Cannabinoid hyperemis syndrome involves stomach pain, unrelenting vomiting, and compulsively taking cold showers. It's associated with overconsumption of cannabis. Hospital admissions for the condition have been rising across North America. In Alberta, for example, they've nearly doubled since 2016 to 32 per 100,000 people. There, it's especially prevalent in 16 to 24-year-olds, where that number is 600 per 100,000. That's your part news. I'm Jay Coburn. Thanks, Jay. Now it's time for Tommy. I want to start this interview by setting the scene with one of Tommy's most iconic moments. Before they broke into movies with Up in Smoke, Cheech Marin and Tommy Chong, a.k.a. Cheech and Chong, were releasing comedy albums. This is from their self-titled album in 1971. It's an iconic piece of radio comedy. It's called Dave. Who is it? It's me, Dave. Open up, man. I got the stuff. Who is it? It's me, Dave, man. Open up. I got the stuff. Who? It's Dave, man. Open up. I think the cops saw me come in here. Who is it? It's it's Dave, man. Will you open up? I got the stuff with me. Who? Dave, man. Open up. Dave? Yeah, Dave. Come on, man. Open up. I think the cops Dave's saw me. Dave's not here. No, man. I'm Dave, man. Hey, come on, man. Who is it? It's Dave, man. Will you open up? I got the stuff with Who? me. Dave, man. Open up. Dave? Yeah, Dave. Dave's not here. No, man, I am Dave, man. Will you? Come on. Open up the door, will you? I got the stuff with me. I think the cops saw me. Who is it? Oh, what the hell is it? Go, man, open up the door. It's Dave. Who? Dave, D-A-V-E. Will you open up the goddamn door? Yeah, Dave. Dave? Right, man, Dave. Now, will you open up the door? Dave's not here. (laughs) As an old disc jockey and radio programmer, I just wanted to take a minute and thank you for everything that you've done to create the baseline for Canadian and certainly American radio. You guys influenced the way we sounded in the late 60s, 70s, and going into the 80s. And it wasn't just your bits, your philosophy and your attitude and everything you did was woven into all those radio stations. And you were part of the soundtrack of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Having been a programmer later on in my career, I just wanted to be able to say thank you. It was a real joy 
to have lived in that era of radio when it was magical, and you were a big part of that. Oh, thank you. That's great. Appreciate it. So I'm curious, thousands of people at the Cannabis Conference in Las Vegas, your wife, son, and grandson are in the audience, and you received the very first Lifetime Achievement Award that's now being called the Tommy Chong Award. So what was that like for you? That was surreal, you know. (laughs) It's kind of weird. But it's nice. I like it. I don't feel my age, in a sense. In fact, I'm kind of amazed. (laughs) I'm sitting here like a 17-year-old mind (laughs) in an 85-year-old but in good shape body. And it's hard as much as weed and acid and, and all the stuff that I've taken. I'm on a constant high. When I went to jail, I got off everything. And as a result, I got deeper into everything that I was perceiving. And then once I connected, it was all over. And now everything is just falling in place and being nice because I have no business being where I am now. (laughs) If it was bent on education or training or or experience or anything else, because I was like plucked out of the middle of an Alberta prairie and here I am. I'm still amazed. I'm totally amazed. I'm blown away, totally. I wanted to dig into the boy that was Thomas B. Kin Chong, the one that was plucked from the Alberta prairies. He was born in 1938 and moved to Calgary as a young kid. I started living in Calgary around in the 40s. I was in the hospital for a while, and I was in the orphanage for a while. And then my dad finally got a little, like a reservation house with the outdoor plumbing and everything else. And that's really what defined the Chong family. Because from the time you're big enough to carry something, you're doing chores. We had to carry the water from the pump, (laughs) and my dad built the nicest outhouse. So we had a beautiful life, a beautiful house, very ecologically correct, because we would capture rainwater, and we would pump the water out of the well, and so we were very strict with the water supply you know my and my mother she just got out of the hospital so she wasn't that strong but she had to do all the washing by hand with a wash tub and my brother would help hang the clothes up and my dad was away driving truck he was a truck driver and a cab driver he was quite a few things but he, he was always gone and it was just my mom and my brother and my sister and myself poor but when you don't know you're poor all you know is that you're happy you got your mom and dad you get fed all the time you know the only thing was like Christmas I I remember because we were split up earlier in my life but when we finally had Christmas it was so memorable because it was all homemade we were like the first of the hippie families Literally, we went out into the woods and chopped down a Christmas tree. And it wasn't that beautiful one you get in the store. You know, a little scraggly thing. <laughs> you know, you couldn't put it on top of your car, you know. But anyway, we had a homemade Christmas, and it was so vivid in my mind. 
Like for presents, my mother baked cookies, and we had fruit and nuts and stuff in our stockings hanging up over the mantle. Santa brought us that, and then my dad took us to a salvation. I know the firemen. They had a gift given out for all the poor kids. We each got a little gift bag, and the gifts were like little Pez dispensers. <laughs> and there was one other little plastic toy. That was it for Christmas. Growing up the way I did, you were so busy keeping the wood pile piled up and bringing the water in and doing all the chores and feeding the chickens and tending to the garden. I mean, we're so busy and so healthy and. It was so good. Religion has always been a part of Tommy's life, right from those early years we're hearing about. His spirituality has taken its own shape since then. But this is where his relationship with God began. The only entertainment we had was church, Sunday school. That was the only excuse to get dressed. You had to get dressed up in your nice clothes. We we never had a whole lot of nice. We had one nice outfit. Have you always been a spiritual person? Not always, you know. I had to learn. I had to learn my lesson. I've always had that basis. When I was eight years old, we're in the country, just Tom Sawyer forever, barefoot, and dusty roads, and I loved our life because we were so alone. One day we're walking on the dusty road with my brother and I were coming home, and we saw a car coming over the hill. Like a thirty-eight Chevy or something, and it was filled with people. A couple of guys, I think a girl. Yeah, when you see a car in the country coming across the field, they're coming to see you. It's not a road, you know. It's just like, where? What's this car doing? Anyway, it was full of missionaries, and the missionaries introduced themselves and said they were running a, a Bible camp, and would we be interested in coming for a couple of weeks to Bible camp? And right away, I said, yes, <laughs> I am so interested. I want to go. And my brother, yeah, okay, yeah, let's an adventure. We were free, so we had to get in the car and go to my mom and get her permission. And then the next day, we got on a bus and drove for hours and hours and hours to a little place called Pine Lake. And in Pine Lake was a Bible camp. But the first thing they taught me was the thing that I do regularly every day, and that's to pray. He taught us how to pray, and the way to best way to pray is to give thanks for who you are, what you are, and when you do that, you sort of like identify yourself, and when you identify yourself, you acknowledge that you are who you are, and once you do that. You got helpers in the spiritual world that are there to be at your beck and call. Everything that I was being taught at that camp, I was like a sponge. I just couldn't get enough of it. I couldn't get enough of the stories, the beautiful stories. And here we are. Picture this: we're in a beautiful Pine Lake area and gorgeous weather. And this young girl would take a group of us, and we go sit under a tree with blankets, and she would tell all these biblical stories. It just hit so well for me. I really was in heaven. So, when I was in camp, I learned the basics of prayer. See, 
your prayers will be answered, but be careful what you ask for. While Tommy was finding a home in religion, in other places he felt that he stuck out like a sore thumb. He was, after all, a young racialized kid in rural Alberta. Growing up, mixed for me in Calgary, it was like a fish out of water thing. I never instigated any fight. I was raised in a hospital, so I, I never had that competitive thing that my brother had to go through. You know, being half Chinese and native, it was a fight. And Calgary was one of the most racist cities in North America. So there's a lot of that racial ignorance all around that area, you know. And, and when you grow up in, in the country, people tend to know more about cows and horses than they do about people. So I have a question for you. Do you think racism and prejudice is innate, or is it learned through the discussions we have in everyday life, our families, media, books, and so on? Well, it's not learned. You don't learn ignorance. You experience ignorance because of the lack of knowledge. With this as the backdrop to his life, it's unsurprising that race and faith always come up when you're in conversation with Tommy Chong. It was there at the start, and it was there throughout his music career, too. By the way, Tommy's music career was way more than just Cheech and Chong. I ended up being in Motown, where I got Smokey Robinson. Every time I see him, he, he gives me a big hug because he knows what's going on inside. The most un-Motown guy ever. Because what it is, I wrote a song. But when you write poetry, it's not you writing. It's the spirit. It's the eternal spirit. What was it like to be signed to Motown? I'm real. That's pretty cool. That's what I'm saying. We didn't send tapes or go down or audition. None of that. We're playing in my after-hours club, which was also given. I was in a band, a Little Daddy and the Bachelors, If you want an early example of Chong toying with race and humor, let's tell you a bit about Little Daddy and the Bachelor story. We were originally called the Shades, and then we, we got kicked out of Calgary and we, by the mayor of Calgary. And so then we went to Vancouver, and then in, in Vancouver, we started playing the nightclubs. That was crazy. We were the first R&B band in Western Canada, for sure. Ronnie Hawkins and the Hawks, you know, Dylan's band, they were in Toronto, but they were from the States, most of them. But we were homegrown, Edmonton and Calgary. That name, The Shades, was a tongue-in-cheek way of reinforcing the racial makeup of the group. It wasn't the last time Tommy would poke fun at racism with that band's name. One was a Sarsi native, Dick Bird. He was the first singer that I played with. And then there's myself, and Tommy Milton was this descendant from the slaves from Texas. Oh, this is very interesting. They had a wagon train of ex-slaves there in Texas. They looked on the map, the furthest part on the map was Edmonton, Alberta. So they said, okay, that's where we're gonna go. And they got a wagon train and they loaded up with people and goods and whatever they had, and they made it up to Edmonton. But the authorities in Edmonton wouldn't let these black ex-slaves stay in Edmonton. They said they had to go up north, further up 
And so they went found a place called Amber Valley. I don't know if it was given or, yeah, it was probably given to them, like homesteads, because that's why they went up there. And that's why I ended up in Edmonton. My dad was a homesteader. And so the Amber Valley was a black community. And out of that black community came this amazing athlete. He was an amazing athlete, an amazing singer and entertainer. And his name was Tommy Melton. And Tommy Melton, a very rough childhood. Running to and fro, out of working at the mill, never failed in the mail. Here comes the rotten bill. Too much for business. Too much for business. Too much for so the Shades moved to Vancouver and became Little Daddy and the Bachelors. They opened up for Ike and Tina Turner, and they started to build up a following. Then apparently on Tommy's suggestion, they changed their name again. I definitely can't say that new name. It's a collection of racial slurs. That name didn't last too long. They then became Bobby Taylor and the Vancouver's, and they signed to Motown Records. By the way, that's the same Bobby Taylor who discovered and mentored the Jackson 5. Meanwhile, Tommy had met a draft dodger in Vancouver, Cheech Marin. So when he got fired for missing band practice, Tommy had other irons in the fire. Like, uh, what are you doing, man? I'm trying to write a song about Santa Claus, man, but it's not coming about out. About who, man? man? About Santa Claus, man. You know Santa Claus, oh, man? Oh, yeah, man. I played yeah, with those dudes, help. man. What? Yeah, last year at the Fillmore, man. Me and you the bass player sat in, man. Oh, oh hey, man, you think Santa Claus is a groove, huh? No, it's not a groove, man. Would they break up, man? Oh, no, man, it's one guy, man. You know, he had, he had a red suit on, man, with black pant leather shoes. You know the guy, man? Oh, yeah. He's with Motown, ain't he? No, man. Yeah, I played no. with that dude, oh. too. Man. <laughs> no, yeah, he's man. a good singer, man. No, no, hold on, man. He's Four hit comedy albums and a successful stand-up career later, they made a movie. An instant classic, and still a cult hit. There's Cheech and Chong, the comedy team that gave birth to rock comedy and in the process turned on a whole generation. Now it's time for the Cheech and Chong movie, Up in Smoke. Up in Smoke was the moment that Cheech and Chong became a part of the bedrock of cannabis culture. It was an irreverent buddy comedy about two stoners smuggling a van made entirely of cannabis. It was a huge success, grossing $44 million despite being produced pretty cheaply. This part of Tommy's life and his relationship with Cheech is documented in the eight movies they made, as well as a slew of memoirs and biographies. They eventually stopped working together in the 80s, but they were about to reunite in the early 2000s when Tommy got arrested. It's kind of wild to think that selling bongs could land you in prison just 20 years ago. But that's exactly what happened to Tommy Chong. His company, Chong's Glass, was raided as part of a federal crackdown on drug-related paraphernalia. Tommy pled guilty to conspiring to distribute drug paraphernalia and was sentenced to nine months in federal prison. His cellmate turned out to be the original Wolf of Wall Street, Jordan Belfort. When you go to prison, they pair you up with other celebrities and that's what Jordan and I were the celebrities uh, of the prison and so uh, we ended up in the same cubicle and Jordan was totally opposite me in every way he was out playing tennis and I'm writing my book one day he comes in what are you doing I told him I'm writing my book he says I'm gonna write a book he was writing a book and I was telling him some stories you know you know the first few nights when I got into the cell he was there before me and uh 
you know, third night. He's like, you know, I thought you were making this shit up, but my wife Googled you and it's all true. He goes, you have to write a book about this. And I'm like, really? You know, I said, like, yeah, your life's crazy. I said, you think my life is that crazy? He goes, I'm Tommy Chong and I think your life is insane. You know, a pretty good barometer for crazy, right? He sat down and wrote a couple of pages and then he handed it to me like I was his teacher. I loved that. After living with Jordan for a while, I realized what he was. A very, very intelligent guy, a genius, but on the wrong path. So he, he handed me what he wrote, and he said, what do you think? He was looking for that compliment that geniuses always get because they're geniuses. But this genius, what he did, he copied the bonfires of the vanities, and almost word for word. But I had to tell him, yeah, man, you haven't written shit, man. He goes, what? <laughs> he says, no, this is bonfires of the vanities. Then he got all sheepish. What, what should I write? I said, write all the stories you've been telling me every night, you know. Because he would. He'd tell me all these stories all night. <laughs> you know, just before we go to bed, and they were the best stories. about. And then I also give him a little hint that if you're going to show something, show it bigger than, better than anybody else has ever done on the screen. And so he did that with his cocaine episodes. And I think that's what made the movie one of the many stories. And by the way, he never told all the good stories. I don't know if there's another book because I think people, okay, that's it. You know, if you try to beat the dead horse. But Jordan, I'm waiting for him to see the light. Your arrest and imprisonment in 2003 brought attention to the issue of drug laws in the U.S. You were part of a $12 million DEA investigation and sentenced to nine months in prison. So looking back, how do you think that experience impacted the conversation around drug policy and criminal justice reform? Oh, it had to be huge. We called her bluff. I showed how stupid the drug laws were. And I, I took advantage of it. I, I've been doing that all my life. Well, look at us. I'm getting ready to start a campaign where I want to become the richest man in the world. And when people say, how are you going to do that? I said, easy. I got product on the market. And if you, everybody on this planet, decides to make me the richest man in the world, you can do it. All you have to do is buy my product or buy Cheech and Chong product. And you keep doing that in enough time in a bigger scale, I shall be Elon Musk. You just won the Lifetime Achievement Award. And I'm curious, after nearly half a century of being part of cannabis culture, being such a huge influence on the industry, how do you view cannabis today? And how do you view its place in society? Well, it's a very interesting dilemma that we have and what we're doing with the cannabis, we're exposing the pharmaceutical industry. We're showing the greed and the ignorance of these pharmaceutical companies and the evilness. Because the pharmaceutical companies are charging outrageous prices for material that people need for illnesses. They should be getting it free, not pay. Pot's kind of legal in the U.S., but not federally. What do you make of the Biden administration's attitude on pot? My take on it is that we, as a 
country, the human experience, it's full of mistakes. And the best you can do is try to learn from your mistakes. And that's what I did. I made mistakes, but they were not career shutting down. And as far as the weed goes, leave it alone. This is my thing. <laughs> Because eventually that's what's going to happen. The Chinese knew about the power of weed way, way back. And they knew all about it, how to govern and the whole thing. You know, They've gone through it. And they're going through it now. I see a nothing but bright and beautiful future ahead. So, Tommy, what's next for you? What's important to you? Uh, trying to remember shit. I got to admit that spending time with Tommy, I was struck by how grounded he is, even while spinning yarns about hanging out with Motown legends. He's a household name, but he's also a father of five and now a grandpa. Tommy Chong is appropriately Canada's finest homegrown. So is he still writing? I think the only thing you might look for me is a book of poetry. Leonard Cohen, that's who I really idolize. Leonard Cohen, I'd like to think that I understand where he's coming from. <laughs> Because that's where I'm coming from, you know. He's had some great, great songs. and I'd like to maybe be part of writing a, a great song. But singing, singing is uh, hard work. It's hard work. I'd rather be a philosopher and sit around and just bullshit. Well, you're a great philosopher. <laughs> Thank you. Tommy, I've really enjoyed our conversation. Is, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you wanted to talk about? You're asking a pothead to remember shit that he hasn't even thought about? <laughs> That'll never happen. Tommy, it's been a real honor. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Well, thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Canadian Podcast. And a huge thanks to Tommy Chong and his team. What a way to kick off Season two! I hope you'll join us for the next episode of the Canadian Podcast, Hit the subscribe or follow button to make sure you do. And while you wait for the next episode, why not go to westernbuzz.ca? The Canadian Podcast is an Everything Podcasts production in partnership with Patterson Media. The opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the views of the podcast team or our partners. And this show is intended for a 19-plus audience. Thanks to creative director Cliff Dumas, showrunner Karen Habashi, senior writer Jay Coburn, At our sound engineer, John Massacar. Thanks for listening to the Canadian Podcast, the authority on cannabis in Canada. I'm Don Schaefer. Another Everything Podcast production. Visit everythingpodcast.com, a division of Patterson Media. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast.